Anyway, this is not making any historical content, is it? And it's actually no, quite a good story. I never story. make historical. You're the one who makes the historical com- content and I just comment. Well, let's make historical comment then. I'll make historical I'm, comment. I'm, I'm winding and up. I might my... even make hysterical comment. Hopefully. I, the energy levels, I'm forcing the energy levels. The last... That's it. Fake it till you make it. The last of my energies, I'm focusing... Fake it. it. Is this because... Ah! Thursday decided to sleep under your chin like a cat beard last night and you breathed in her fur to the point where she blocked all your sinuses. I mean, I didn't get a lot of sleep. No, <laughs> neither did I. I'm not going to lie. I was used as a cat trampoline. I, God I, love these lovely. furry souls. God love these furry souls. It but was lovely Jesus, give and me some torture. Sleep. It was terrible. Mm. But, she is aggressive with her lovies and aggressive... Just aggressive. At least, at least we're trialing the exact same thing tonight. Yay! Go round two. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> hey up! I'm Joe Heathcote, and this is Consistently Eccentric, a British history podcast where we try to make sense of some of the lesser-known and more absurd people and events these islands have produced. So let's get started with this story. Mm-hmm. Takes place in the Georgian era. Don't ask. I'm going to give you a date in the first sentence. Okay. Mm-hmm. It was early evening Mm. on Thursday, March 6th, 1788, when an Englishman by the name... Before the Victorian era. Very before the Victorian era. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, I say very, I mean, what, 70 years-ish? No, 60 years-ish? It was early evening on Thursday, March 6th, 1788, Mm -hmm. when an Englishman by the name of John Brown... Good English name fine English name, entered the office of the Sheriff Clark in Edinburgh. Oh, Edinburgh. We're off to Edinburgh later in the year. Mm, and we're off there now because he did indeed walk into the office of the Sheriff Clark of Edinburgh to confess that he knew who had been responsible for the audacious break-in at the excise office the previous night. What's an excise? It was the place where they stored all of the taxes that had been collected. Okay. Amongst other things. Thank you. He knew because he himself had been one of the men. And it's quite easy to know who did the robbery if it was you. Is, it, is he the Scarlet Pimpernel? If he is, he's doing a very bad job of it. I don't remember the Scarlet Pimpernel ever breaking a French aristo out of prison and then immediately revealing who he was and confessing to the uh, French no, revolutionaries. I don't even think in the Richard E. Grant one he did that. No, because no. he, he wouldn't be the Scarlet Pimpernel very long. No. Okay. As we were. He'd be the dead Pimpernel. He would. John was a man already running from a sentence of seven years' transportation he had received across the border in England. Mm-hmm. And he decided that the reward of a king's pardon for turning in his accomplices was worth more than his honour. And much more than the measly four quid that was his disappointing share of the loot. All of them taxes... No, that's what they managed to find while they were in there. So they broke oh, in expecting God. to find just money piled up mm. and they actually found enough so that his share was four pounds jesus Christ. which even in today money i put it back well you've got to leave with something no i'd literally put it back now i mean it's not worth me time. claim it wasn't a robbery go claim from robbery down to trespass yeah with menaces yeah frustratingly it would later emerge that there had been over 600 quid in a hidden drawer literally inches away from where they had pilfered the 16 pounds that constituted the entire haul oh jesus and 
it's time for you to talk about a man look if you wish because yeah. i will i will tell you now all of the people involved in the robbery were men yeah i i mean i don't want to say that men have a specific way of looking for things that doesn't include opening anything moving anything or looking harder than a glance in the general direction but our three-year-old son does a man look at the age of three something can be in the on the table in front of him and he will spin round and go can't find it well in this case the man look cost them approximately ninety-three thousand pounds in today's oh, money well, they missed out on the big boo. money prize well, to be honest they weren't that great at it then were they well, we'll find out, because this wasn't the first robbery they did. Mm. After showing the authorities a stash of copied keys and burglary equipment hidden under a stone at the bottom of Salisbury Crags, mm. they were satisfied that Brown must be telling the truth. Were they search warrants? What? Were they crowbars? Why we... Oh, you're doing a, you're doing a Gene Hunt thing, mm. right. Uh, there were some crowbars there. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> when they say burglary equipment, it... It would have been easier to say they found a, a bunch of um, copy keys and some crowbars. Oh, okay. That's probably the easiest way to describe it. Um, yeah, the authorities were satisfied and they asked John Brown to give the names and addresses of his gang so that they could be arrested and charged. Mm. He told them to arrest another Englishman called George Smith. Oh, my God. Brown Smith. Well, they are English. Jesus. And a local shoemaker called Andrew Ainsley. Okay, a bit more of an exciting mm. name. Now, if you're good at maths, you might notice that if an even split of sixteen pounds of loot was four pounds, mm. then there must have been another member of the gang mm. that Brown didn't immediately give up. No. Mm. And interestingly, shortly after Ainsley and Smith were taken to the Tollbooth prison on the Royal Mile mm -hmm. on Friday the seventh of March, they were visited by a well-to-do city councillor and deacon of the Guild of Rights and Masons. Oh, was he a bloke with funny handshake? Mm, no, Is when that I say rights and man? Mason, when I say rights and Masons, I mean, he was straight up the people who actually built things. So he, right. yeah. I mean, it, I assume he was in a few secret clubs, but mm. in this case, no, straight up, he was, he wow. was a right. Uh, and his name was William Brodie. Mm. or at least he would have visited them if he'd not been turned away by the guards mm. so he in his position as city councillor said yeah, I just want to visit these two prisoners um, for reasons I do not wish to disclose and they went nope and he just kind of turned away <laughs> sheepishly and went okay oh, then well. It soon became clear as to the purpose of that visit, mm -hmm. as Smith quickly told authorities that William, better known by his title Deacon, mm. Brody, had been the mastermind of not only the excise office raid, the successful excise office raid. 16 quid. But also of another 10 burglaries over the previous year and a half that had been baffling the authorities in Edinburgh, as there were practically no signs of forced entry at any of them. Wow. Now, I don't know if Smith was trying to, a bit like, you know, Brown had done, buy his freedom. Yeah, yeah. Whether this was the reason Brown I mean, had done... talk about, no, talk about honour amongst thieves. There was none, was there? I mean, this is... No, 
What you have here call is Call him have, a scab. Call him a scab. No, you have three poor... Can't hold his mud. You have three relatively poor people and a rich toff. And the mm. first of the relatively poor people went, right, what I'll do is I'll dob in the other two. And if they've mm. got any sense, they'll just dob in the guy that they're really going to want, mm-hmm. the mastermind, and then we can all get away scot-free. Mm-hmm. And we can put it all on the rich toff who told us there'd be riches untold in that place. And mm-hmm. we put our lives on the line for it. For 16 quid. No, for four quid each. Come four on. quid each, yeah. Um, unfortunately, Smith didn't get the gist of this plan. And he went on to say that there were future plan targets for the gang, including the Sterling Stagecoach. Wow. The Watchmakers, Dog Leash and Dickie. Mm-hmm. The Lottery Office of White and Mitchell. Oh, my God. A baker's, weirdly. I would imagine that a baker's in that day and age would hold quite a lot of cash. Well, it may have been that they just needed some food to fortify themselves because the very next target after the baker's was the Bank of Scotland. Jesus. Yeah, they had designs. Wow. Go big or go home. But unfortunately... You know, if you if you sort of confess that you were planning to rob the Bank of Scotland, mm-hmm. they don't want to let you out. And Smith wasn't let out. Oh, dear. Not wanting to believe the slanders that George Smith was aiming at the well-known gentleman, the authorities went to speak to Deacon Brodie at his workshop further along the Royal Mile, just to straighten things out. Mm-hmm. And they were surprised to find he'd fled the city in secret on Sunday, March 9th. <laughs> Which... I'm not a I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a policeman, but it seems to me a bit incriminating. A little bit, but you know, I mean people take trips, don't they? Especially aristocrats. He may have been called away on business. Exactly. Oh he wasn't an aristo, he was a businessman. Okay. A well, business. Exactly. Very busy. But why would a successful cabinet maker with a councillor's seat who had received an inheritance of over ten thousand pounds in then money from his father less than a decade before, have possibly turned to a life of crime. Gambling. Women. Is that, are those your guesses? And drugs. Let's let's find out. Because William Brody, <laughs> it's very good guesses, was born on 28th of September, yeah. 1741. Mm-hmm. His father, Francis, yeah. ran a very successful cabinet-making business catering to the wealthiest of Edinburgh residents. You don't get very many Francises anymore, do you? No. It's going to name a bit like Gary. It's kind of died out. I think it died out a bit before Gary. I don't know. I went to school with people called Gary. I don't think I went to school with the Francis. Did you? I don't think we had one Gary at our school. Mm. Definitely not in our year anyway. Mm, well, I can't recall the Gary. Yeah, but you've got to remember you were in a posher part of the country than me. <sighs> But just. But because he was catering specifically to the wealthiest, mm. Francis could afford to send little William, little Billy, little Willie, little Willie to James Mundell's exclusive school in nearby West Bow for posh knobs. For posh knobs, okay. where he developed a lifelong love of opera, often singing while he worked, mm. which I'm sure didn't become annoying. Not in the slightest. Yeah. A child pretending to sing opera is not annoying at all. No, no, he was singing actual arias. He was singing opera. He was learning them and singing them. Oh, you see, I mean, that's akin to a kid learning the bloody violin. No, 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 no. Nothing that could screech, including voice. 
Well, no. yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> he was going through puberty at the time, if it helps. Oh, no. By the time he was in his early 20s, though, William was being groomed to take over from his father and was developing a sense of entitlement and an inflated ego that could become problematic if left unchecked. Sorry, what did Francis do again? He was grooming his son to take over the family business. What was he? What did he do? It's inconsequential what he did, really, at this particular stage. I like to know when I'd forgotten. He's a cabinet maker. Right, OK, so little Willie will have made those tiny little apprentice cabinets then. At some just point, he would have darling. made those... Yeah, and... My prob- mum's got one of those, you know. Hopefully, he would have signed it, little Willie. Little Willie. Yeah, or they could have made it, you know, like a, a doll-sized one. Yeah. Little Willie's. A side... You know, they could have had it as a side hustle. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, he... He was starting to develop a bit of an ego. Mm. And unfortunately, the family decided they didn't need to manage that. They didn't need to in any way bring him down a peg or two or instill some real world values. Because mm. they didn't want to upset their special little man and heir to oh. the entire fortune. This story is already aggravating me because it's everything I hate. Well, as a result of the, you know, l- let's say loose parenting style. Uh, they didn't question William's tendency to go out drinking in some of the more seedy Edinburgh establishments on an almost nightly basis. And to be fair, things started out relatively innocently, Mm. with William frequenting gentlemen's clubs within the old city. Very respectable. There was a wide range to choose from as well, Mm. including the spendthrift, the black wigs, Mm. The Odd Fellows mm. and the rather on the nose, I feel, Dirty Club. You could be a member of the Dirty Club. I just. Don't um... worry, he didn't choose to be a member of the Dirty Club. William Brodie preferred the Cape Club. Not only for the great Welsh rarebit it served, that was its signature dish. In Scotland? Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but also for its main focus on sexual fantasy. Oh, no. Each member had to adopt a new and suggestive title. Oh, God. Some of the most obvious included Sir Stark Naked and, of course, Sir Roger. King Knob. Upon joining, William had to hold a red-hot poker over his crotch and speak the following oath. I swear devoutly by this light to be a true and faithful knight with all my might both day and night, so help me poker. Fanar, Fanar. Right. And help him poker, it definitely did. Oh. By his 30s, William Brodie had not one, but two mistresses in the city Anne Grant and Jean Watt. Mm. He was financially supporting both and would eventually be expected to also support the five children he sired to them. Wow. And he did this in two separate households alongside his own accommodation. So he was running three houses in order to keep his two mistresses completely oblivious of each other Mm. and when i say houses they had servants jesus christ i know and each one of them thought that they were the true love of william's life and that he kept oh they didn't even know no he kept he kept them in home and he obviously lived in accommodation over the shop and he's like well i do Mm -hmm. need to spend time over the shop because i work so hard you know Mm -hmm. Most evenings I'm working till four, five in the morning, so yeah. I'll only see you a couple of nights a week. But I don't want you to have to live over the shop, so you have that lovely house over there. Oh my god! 
on the periphery. Yeah. Thank you. Although the drinking and the women were clearly quite expensive for William, as I've said, his father was rich and so it wasn't beyond his means. Gosh. Or at least it wouldn't have been if he didn't indulge in another vice on an almost daily basis. Oh. Sorry, daily basis? He wasn't doing anything in the day. He was making what I assume was incredibly shoddy furniture because he was yeah. hung over. On a nightly basis was what I should have said. Oh, God. It is the triptych, so... Gambling. Gambling. Way! You got them all. Oh, God. He started with dice, which he liked to play at a rough tavern in flesh market close. Oh, right. With, this is a direct quote, uh-huh. a band of disreputable twitchers and crook-fingered jacks. Amazing. I thought twitchers were bird people. That's what I thought first. So I thought of, like, dodgy... Yeah, dodgy men in brown anoraks with... Oh, this is a red crested sparrow. For me, you know, it's a disreputable twitcher is somebody who (laughs) claims birds they haven't seen. A naughty, a naughty bird spotter is actually is actually looking at the non feathery type. (laughs) (laughs) There, there, there's a grebe. That's a mallard. No, no, it just flew away. You didn't see see it. it. Oh yes, up in that tree next to that lady's window. That's kind of funny. That's what I said. That's see. his excuse for being on the train. Yeah. <laughs> God, why did you immediately go to sexual perversion? I was just going for a bit of uh, dishonesty. Just dirty old man in a Mac. <laughs> That's where my mind went. Okay, so William was busy um, gambling with dirty old men in Macs, yeah. possibly with nothing underneath. Who knows? Um, but considering the standard of clientele. It's amazing that Brody had the stones to regularly cheat with loaded dice. Wow. Because he Weighted could... dice? Yeah. Gosh. Because he, you know, he really quite liked to win. Everybody does, but you've. I'm sorry, you've got to suck up a loss. No, 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 he's, he's special. He's not. He's the special little guy. No, he's his he's mother's the special little soldier. He's everybody else's eyes all right. Well, no, he's And that's he's what you've got to try to and Brody teach your kids. Fortune. You're everybody else's average. No one's, no one's teaching William this. Well, they should. At any point. I should knock him down. Peg or three. But he just so happened to be cheating with loaded dice mm. when he managed to fleece the master of the city's chimney sweeps, James Hamilton. Right. And he swindled him out of two and a half guineas in gold. Which is quite a bit. Okay. The master sweep responded... Broke his nose. Oh no, he cut him up. This is a chimney sweep we're talking about. Oh Jesus. He cut he William wasn't Brody chim, chimney, up. He chim, was chimney, chim, kind of chimney sweep. Oh no, then. he was, until you cheated him. Mary Poppins? Yeah, that's the scene you don't see in Mary Poppins. <laughs> Dick Van Dyke being cheated in a loaded dice game and just cutting, cutting a boy up. <laughs> slices one way, he slices another. Step in time. <laughs> Slicing time, slice in time. time. Taking out your eye. <laughs> Well, he almost did, actually. Oh, he left William Brody with a scar over one eye, which ah, he had for the rest of his life. The wicked, cool kind of scar. Yeah, if you want to imagine him like with Lion the scar King. from Scar yeah. in The Lion King. There you go. Wow. Uh, and although Brody denied cheating, it is telling that the authorities didn't attempt to press charges against Hamilton, even though he was open about having slashed the face of a member of the city council. Right, so they knew he was a bit of a twat then. Well, I think it was a case a of thwait, we if you can will. Pro- we can protect you, William, from you know the charge of using loaded dice and from all the gambling and mm. vice. 
but mm. there is no way we are going to prosecute this guy for calling you on it because nope. that's a step too far. Yeah. But even the threat of disfiguring injury was not enough for William Brody. It wasn't exciting enough. <sighs> Who decided that what was missing from his life, the thing that wasn't quite scratching his itch, he knew what mm. it was that he needed. Go on. The noble art of cocking. Yeah, I know what that is. Then explain for the people. I assume it is cockfighting. No, you would think that. Or something to do with a gun. (laughs) Yeah. No, it is cockfighting. He became heavily involved in the practice of cockfighting. Well, you see, I knew that in Georgian times, see, um, that, that it was very 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 popular sport it was an incredibly popular sport amongst the gentle folk it was Mm. it was and he became heavily involved not only in breeding his own cocks which he would obviously bet heavily on special cocks for cockfighting like they do on the continent where it's actually still illegal sorry not illegal it's still legal oh you but like bantam cocks yeah i I assume they had specific breeds you weren't just going to get your rooster off farm well no but yeah, there you, is... you breed special cocks yeah. for this, and he'd obviously bet heavily on his own cock because you do far too much about this. I did actually watch a pro- a, a program about Eastern European cockfighting. Of course, you did. This is where was I spent my days. Was it in the wee small hours? <laughs> it was actually. It was while uh, while our little boy, our little darling boy, was tiny and didn't sleep. Ever. So you had a tiny baby on your lap while mm. you watched Eastern European cocks go at it. It was whatever was on Channel 5 at the time. Mm. Seems a Channel 5 kind it's, of thing. It, oh, it was very Channel 5. The problem was, though, William, he couldn't just bet on his own cocks. Any right. match that was on, he had to have a flutter, and he was betting huge amounts. Wow. And it seems he was a loser at least as often as he was a winner. Well, isn't that gambling in a nutshell? Mm. but really? at least you know when you're breeding your own cocks you you get the the baby well i guess it'd be a chick wouldn't it and you mm. send it off to a special trainer who were called feeders mm-hmm. and they were called feeders because each one of them would have the special proprietary mix of food oh, that I they'd know. claim oh would... god yeah the these these <laughs> kind of like prize chicks go for like ridiculous money mm. and stuff yeah but it's Unlike a racehorse, mm. where, you know, if it loses a race, you can go back, find out what was wrong, do some more training, da 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 Oh, no, they, they, they literally no, they die. die. So yeah. it, it's like, it costs you so much to raise a cock. Yeah. Then you bet heavily on it, and then it loses. Yeah. You've not just lost your stake, you've also lost the money you spent on the chick, you've yeah. lost all the money you paid to the feeder, who'd been well, rearing see, it Even if you're months. a winner in that situation, there's no guarantee that your cock hasn't sustained so much injury that it wouldn't die within a couple of days after the fight well some of these um they'd have a round they'd have a sort of a tournament a mm. one night tournament so mm. you'd end up with 16 and of those 16 cocks you'd only end up with one that was potentially still alive but like you say if you've been through four mm. different fights mm. you're not going to be it's not going to be great it'd probably die within 24 mm. hours mm. but back to william Mm. we can't sit here talking about the pros and cons of cox he had managed to lose so much that Mm -hmm. by the late 1770s as he was approaching his 40s he needed to resort to desperate measures did he do a steal well he probably banked on the idea that he'd have 
received his inheritance by this point, but his father was stubbornly continuing on in good health, rude health, mm. into his 70s. I'm fairly sure that that's what Prince Charles thinks about the Queen, but yeah, come on. <laughs> as part of his legitimate daytime work, as a well-to-do cabinet maker, yeah. William would regularly be called on to make new doors for both private houses and businesses. It was during oh. such a job for an elderly and wealthy lady that he impulsively decided to take an imprint of the key. Uh-huh. Making a copy, he waited until a Sunday morning when he knew the devout woman would be otherized engaged, praising the Lord at church. Oh, yeah. But yeah. just to be safe, he wore a mask. Mm-hmm. This had turned out to be a very good idea, as the old lady had been feeling a bit ill and was actually asleep in a chair when William Brodie entered. She woke up and stared at him. Shatterpants, probably. Well, screamed. No, she was frozen in terror. Oh, she my didn't God. move. She couldn't make a sound. And William, he didn't seem that bothered that his plan to, you know, sneak into a house had immediately been foiled. Mm. Uh, he gave her a nod, took the keys from the table in front of her, unlocked her bureau, took what was described as a considerable sum of money before locking the bureau again. And putting the keys back where he found them, because he's a neat boy. He then gave the terrified woman a small bow before walking out. As she sat there in a puddle of her own piss. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Are you going to ravish me? No. No. <laughs> I want your money, your old hag. <laughs> oh, okay. Bye then. The woman later said that she suspected the man had been William Brodie, but the idea of a gentleman stooping so low as to rob an old woman was so absurd she didn't mention her suspicions to anyone else out of embarrassment. This this reminds me of another episode that we did way back in year one, still available on iTunes, Acast and Spotify. Getting a plug in there because it was one of my episodes that were recorded. This reminds me of... Well, so you're just plugging yourself. I'm plugging myself here, Joe. I... It reminds me heavily of the Chubb Brothers episode. This oh, little we're talking about locks. This little bit. No, because it was about lock picking and, mm. and things like that, wasn't it? And they gave it to the um The American The American Who cracked it. Yeah. While it was protected well, while one of those was protecting the largest diamond in the world. Yeah. Yeah, it was quite embarrassing for them. It was. But in this in this situation, I think because she was an older woman mm. and because she had a lot of money, yeah. she was worried that if she started going around randomly accusing councilmen of breaking mm-hmm. into her quarters and taking stuff, that people might go, oh, she's a bit... Especially, she's... you know, the people who are going to in- inherit from her, going, mm. she's lost marbles off mm-hmm. to the madhouse with you. Well, that or you're removing all doubt as to how much money you have in your house as well. If you're not 100% sure it's him, and then you go and declare to people that this weird thing happened because you have loads of money in your house and you're really, really wealthy and you're a doddery old woman who lives by herself and randomly falls asleep in the middle of the day, are you not then making yourself a sitting duck? Because I don't think I'd want to be broadcasting that scenario. Mm, well, well, with the success of the first crime, you know, Asterix was immediately caught. Yes. It's just the person who caught him was incapable of yeah. doing anything about it. Brody arranged a second. Right. This time... Arranged? He... I mean, I don't think he really arranged the first, did oh, he? This time he planned to rob a friend by going to his house for supper just before he went away on a long trip surreptitiously taking an imprint of his key while he was there. 
However, his friend had to delay his trip by one day due to some urgent business and so was in his house when Brody arrived to rob him. Hearing a creak, the man went downstairs to find someone he clearly recognised as Brody in a mask, rifling through his possessions. When Brody finally realised he was being observed, he simply put out his lantern, because he was carrying a little lantern, yeah. and backed away out of the house, just like, oh, no. you saw nothing, yeah. nothing. However, again, his friend was just unsure enough about the identity mm. that he didn't report the matter to authorities. I think, to be honest, in that scenario, especially as he's kind of like, I imagine, tied a handkerchief round the bottom half of his face... And obviously has like, I would assume for the time, there's a hat on as well. So shadows. Oh yeah, tri-corner hat. And and stuff like that. The, at a distance, you'd be like, is it? But your brain would be going, that's ridiculous. That's your friend. They were round at tea yesterday. Mm. That I, isn't... I will point out he also had a very clearly recognisable facial scar. And he was tiny. He was my height. He was five foot four. And even back in the day, well, even back in the day, he would have stood out as a bit of a tiny man because apparently he was also slight with it. So he was he was a very tiny little dot of a man. But luckily for Brody's friends and customers, Uh his father, Francis, finally died in 1782, leaving his son, now known as Deacon Brody, around £10,000 and control over the family business. Jesus Christ, he doesn't deserve it, does he? Well, no. And to be fair to Brody... That wasn't enough to send him straight. It took another failed robbery at a local tobacconist before he realised he didn't need to do this anymore to support his vices. No, and his families. And from that point, he managed to avoid burglary for around six years. Which was also, coincidentally, about the time it takes for a man with no impulse control whatsoever to blow through around £10,000. Wow. And throughout this period, he kept up the facade that he was a respectable businessman and member of the town council, giving no indication that he was hurtling towards financial ruin at high speed. So he's given this glorious out Mm -hmm. of, right, you've done some robberies. It's Mm -hmm. quite obvious you shit at them. You've done three. Mm -hmm. You've been caught in the act at two of them. Yep. And the tobacconists, he was again caught in the act. So three for three. Yep. He was caught in his burglaries mm-hmm. which is it's like burglary 101 if possible avoid being caught doing the burglary yeah and even with those warnings and even with enough money i mean we were saying 600 quid was the equivalent of uh, 93,000 mm-hmm. so i can't work it out but 10,000 pounds should have been enough yeah and it wasn't like that was it he was also making money because he was still getting all the plum contracts that his yeah. dad, because his dad had built up this base of customers, and they yeah. all recognised Brodie's as the place to go to get bespoke stuff made. Yeah, and it turns out he's quite good at it as well. Well, it's it's one of those things, isn't it? It's just like if he'd actually just sat back and gone, Do you know what, this is enough, mm. then he'd probably be all right because you know his his money would also, if he didn't have all of his vices, um, it would actually garner interest because they did have interest back back then. Mm. for things like that so well yeah yeah you you could invest it you could have passive income he could if he'd have had one mistress gone drinking three nights a week Mm. and limited his gambling to either dice or cocking Mm. he'd have been fine even you mean 
a man with all the vices if he had a little bit of moderation. Yes, if it, a little bit of vice does you An good. iota of moderation. Yeah, but he didn't. No. And finally, in <laughs> 1786, two things occurred that convinced Brodie to give in to his darker nature right. and redon his mask and his lantern again. Oh, my God. Because I think part of it as well, he clearly liked the thrill of it. This was a guy who would wear a cape and a mask oh and he would take God. a dark lantern with him. And it's, ha, oh. ha. I think part of it was, I, I like having he this. He should have gone into theatre. If only. If only. How fabulous. Well, firstly, he had run out of money mm-hmm. and was falling even further into debt. Right. And Fab. secondly, the council had decided to replace the cobbles of the Royal Mile. This lowered the level of the street and necessitated the replacement of most of the doors. And guess who that contract fell to? Oh, wow. Whilst completing this work... Deacon Brodie took the opportunity to make copies of the keys of the most lucrative businesses and private homes. Oh my God, right. Mm. With the keys in hand, Brodie decided it might also be good to recruit some accomplices. You know, someone to act as a lookout or to help him case the joint. goat. (laughs) Well, having learned that, you know, he was constantly caught in the act, he finally... he showed a modicum of um, self-awareness in that I like playing this role, but maybe I need some actual criminals mm-hmm. to help me in this enterprise. Mm. So he recruited Smith, Brown and Ainsley mm. and began his crime spree on Saturday, August 12th, 1786, when his gang successfully robbed over £800 from a pair of bankers called Johnson and Smith. Another Smith. Yeah. There's a lot of very common names. So Smith and Brown robbed from johnson and smith okay they don't i don't know they don't sound very scottish names to me are they scottish names well i think johnson and smith are just british well johnson that's just son of john so that would have been ubiquitous across the country yeah um smith i think's more english brown yeah. you, gordon brown for god's sake oh yeah okay um, sorry yeah i mean just smith smith feels a very englishy name Maybe that was it. Johnson and Smith was a sort of Anglo-Scottish alliance. Oh, it might be, mm, yeah. A powerhouse. Mm. They then hit a goldsmith's on October 9th, taking over 50 gold and diamond rings. And then in November, they hit up a hardware merchant. To steal the crowbars? Well, maybe. I, I don't know. I, I'm guessing hardware merchants have money on them, but it seems a bit more, you know, you've gone and you've done. Well, what kind of hardware? Like, like Just hardware. What, like hammers? Well, or are you talking about gold door knockers <laughs> and brass fixings? I don't know. It just said a hardware store. Mm. You know, I didn't didn't look into what stock they carry. It's just you know, <laughs> you go I want to know what they robbed. You go from a you go from bankers to They're you not know take carpet a goldsmith. Tax, are they? You go from bankers to goldsmiths to a hardware store. It just seemed like a step down to me. Yeah. It was probably very lucrative. Yeah. I'm not going to question Brody's plan. He'd Mm -hmm. obviously scoped these places out. Mm -hmm. Then, in December 1786, they pulled off a trio of burglaries, Mm. including break-ins on both Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Good days to pick. Oh, yeah. Not a lot of people about. But during the Christmas Day break-in, Brody was confronted by the wife of the rich merchant he was robbing. She got caught again. But luckily for him, he wasn't the only one with vices. And he had found a secret picture the wife had of a gentleman who was clearly not her husband. Could be a brother. Cousin. 
This was Friend. a this was a saucy etching. Mm. He was able to convince her to keep quiet about the robbery in return for not sharing her infidelities. Is this is this an old school dick pic? Essentially, yeah. <gasps> an etching of his knob. I don't think it was. His, I think it, an ankle. It was clearly a token for a lover. Let's mm-hmm. put it that way. It was probably just him in his tightest hose. I don't think it was. No, 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 no. However, the episode convinced him to lay low for a while, and the gang waited until August the next year before continuing their crime spree. Right. Now, all the things that they stole, I should point out, because you're, th- you're probably thinking, they stole over 50 gold and diamond rings. That's not currency. You can't, you can't go with, you know, sort of hallmarked gold rings and go, there you go. No, but you could go to, you could go and get a good price for them. Well, that's what they did. They had a fence in Chester. Mm. So every now and then, either um, Ainsley or Brown mm. would take all of the things that they'd stolen, all the hammers from the hardware store, and they'd go down to Chester and they'd hand them all over to the fence who could sell them because, yeah. you know, it was far enough away yeah. from Edinburgh, the heat was off. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. They've managed four more successful robberies before the fateful night at the excise office in March of 1788, by which time the people of Edinburgh were convinced that a kleptomaniacal ghost was stalking the city, taking what it wanted as, at will. Because most of these places, they had no idea. You know, there was no sign of forced entry. There no. was. It's weird that they had the crowbars, really, because they had the keys. But they would go in and just stuff would be gone. Mm. And they'd take inventory and they'd be like, we're missing all of this stuff. How the mm. hell has that happened? Where's There's no gone? smash window. No. Well, this will all be before forensics as well, so it wouldn't matter how much stuff they touched. No, no, no. Or anything. They could just literally go in and take it. Yeah, and sod it. It was just being caught with the loot would be the only problem. Yeah. So, like I said at the top of the episode, Deacon Brodie left Edinburgh abruptly on a Sunday via stagecoach. Uh Uh-huh. And it was the express coach because he was making for London. Right. Despite the fact that the Bow Street runners of London had been alerted and were actively looking for him. Right. He managed to evade them by staying in the home of a female friend for 10 days, which he claimed was just a few streets away from Bow Street itself. Wow. So right under the noses. Oh. Brodie was waiting for his friends to arrange passage to the continent because he reasoned that if he could make it to Europe, he could then seek passage to start a new life in America where the law wouldn't really be able to touch him. Mm Mm-hmm. Because relations weren't particularly good with the colonies at this stage. And they weren't exactly going to, you know, send someone back across. Not really. And, you know, (coughs) I think this is pre-Interpol. Oh, oh, yeah. The stuff like that, yeah. Well, no, not really. I mean, he, the reason he needed to get to America was because if he was on the lam in Europe, he could, the the long arm of the law could definitely reach to the continent at this stage. okay. Taking on the name John Dixon... He embarked on a boat called the Endeavour, but obviously not that one. He wasn't going to the Arctic. Right. Uh, the ship was supposed to sail instead for Leith in Scotland. Uh-huh. But Brodie, he made a secret deal with the captain to come up with an excuse to stop off in Holland. Right. For reasons. Yeah. Left it up to the captain to decide why he had to suddenly stop in Holland. Okay. From there, Brody would seek passage to New York, where his friends had ensured he would be provided with the resources to start a new life. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, it didn't start well, this plan, because there was immediately a delay of two weeks as the Endeavour ran aground on a sandbar in the Thames estuary. Oh, dear. Uh, <laughs> it took them two weeks to get off. So all these other boats that were making for other places uh-huh. just tooting past him as he was busy trying <laughs> trying to escape to, to the continent, to the Americas, which was, I'm sure, infuriating. Very. Um, although you could say it worked in his favour because everyone was expecting him to do a quick dart. Mm. So they weren't expecting first the delay of 10 days and then the delay of two weeks. Mm. It's like only a fool would wait an entire month yeah, yeah. before what, yeah. getting off the British Isles yeah. when they were wanted for, you know, massive robbery. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Did they have any idea where he was? No, not at this point. They know wow. he. They knew he'd been in London, and they suspected he was making for the continent. Uh-huh. But they had no idea exactly where okay. he had a lawyer who was sorting things out in America. But like all lawyers, when they said where is he, he's like, mm, don't know. And he told Brody, "Don't write to anyone, mm. no matter how much you might want to." until you are safely in America. Then you can send as many letters as you want because are you done cracking your knuckles? I'm really sorry. They were so painful. I feel better now. You I'm can, getting stressed. You can write to anyone you want as soon as you get to America, but until you're there, they can get you. And yeah. any letter you send, if someone figures out it's from you, they can use that to trace where you were going. So please, Brody. All we want you to do is just go a bit incognito. We now now know what he did, don't we? Because he's going to do that because his ego's too big to contain. The problem was he was on that boat for too long and he was bored. So he did. He went against the advice and he wrote several letters to both of his mistresses and to friends in the city, which he entrusted to a fellow Scottish passenger to deliver. Mm. Reasoning, by the time that guy delivers them, I'll have gone. It'll be fine. Mm Mm-hmm. When this passenger, John Geddes, got home, having made a weird stop-off in Holland where that John Dixon fellow he'd met who had the scar over the eye Mm -hmm. and was quite short had Mm. just randomly got off, Uh, he realised he'd probably met Deacon Brodie. Yeah. And he handed the letters into the authorities rather than delivering them. So he's a very bad postman, Pat. was a very Um, bad postman, Pat. And the authorities used this information... Mm to kind of figure out what was going on because they'd already been told he disembarked in Holland. Yeah. And they'd been told where he disembarked in Holland. Mm. So they reasoned he was making for the ports mm-hmm. further up the coast mm. where you could get passage to America. Now, Brody, he was unaware that the net was closing in because, of course, he thought he was a criminal genius. He's not a criminal genius. So far, I think it's just... He's just about scraped through enough to not like look like a complete and total bell end. <laughs> well, um, but then again, I think he is. So because he was unaware that the net was closing in, mm. he he used his John Dixon persona some of the time. He didn't remember that he was supposed to be um, traveling incognito, and sometimes he would kind of let slip, and he wasn't exactly you know hiding his light under a bushel most of the time. Oh. He kind of got the idea that someone was following him. So for the last day, he tried to travel a bit like a tramp uh, and tried to, you know, take a, a low rent room in a mm-hmm. sort of out of the way in. But it was too late. 
He was eventually apprehended by an Irishman called John Daly in Amsterdam, only a few days before he would have been in the mid-Atlantic and practically untouchable. Oh, my God. Uh, And he was taken to The Hague. Oh, right, yeah. 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 Uh, To await extradition. Brody tried to delay his extradition by insisting that he was, in fact, John Dixon. I'm John Dixon. But that didn't really work, what with his distinguishing facial scar... (laughs) His tiny height and build. And the fact that they had letters that had been pressed into the hand of this guy. Mm-hmm. Some were signed John Dixon. Mm. Others were signed WB. And all were sent to people that William Brody personally knew. Oh, for the love of God. So I mean... it, it would have been better for him if he'd either written them all as John Dixon or written them all as William Brody. Because if he'd written them all as William Brody, he could have claimed, well, I was just passing them on for a friend. Mm-hmm. I'm John Dixon, but, mm-hmm. you know... The, the, William, the, the genius that he was, decided... Apart from the fact that he is him and he's done nothing to hide the fact that he's got a scar and he can't do anything about the fact that he's really small. Well, ultimately, it's the window sweep's revenge. You don't you don't cross a sweep because they will curse you. They will. Um, yeah, it didn't work anyway. And he was returned to stand trial in Edinburgh on 27th of August, 1788 over five months after he first fled the city. Mm. In the end, it was only Brodie and Smith who stood trial for the robbery of the excise office. Right. Both... How did Brown and... How did they get out of that one, then? Well, Brown and Ainsley agreed to act as witnesses for the prosecution. Mm. Smith's lawyer argued that this should not be permissible as Brown was a convicted criminal with clear material gain to be had by placing the blame on others. But the judge ruled that the pardon he had received Mm. had expunged this conviction and as a result he could not be barred from acting as a witness. Right. So the the rule is convicted criminals couldn't act as witnesses Mm -hmm. because they'd proven themselves to be untrustworthy. Yeah. And the judge basically said, even though he is a convicted criminal, the king has pardoned that, Mm. therefore we can't treat him as a convicted criminal in a court of law, Mm. even though we all know he's a complete wrong Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. It was kind of, they'd already decided what they were going to do, mm. you know. But what really sunk the two men was the content of one of the letters that Brody had sent from on board the Endeavour. In it, he had claimed to have had no part in any of the robberies. Right. And I quote, Excepting the last, which I shall ever repent. And as the trial was focused entirely on the last robbery, this was what they call a confession. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it was enough to ensure that both Brody and Smith were convicted. Okay, yeah. So if he just left it, uh, I had no part in any of the robberies. Yeah. They couldn't have used it as evidence against it. It was the oh. fact that he oh, yeah, added that extra little line. No bad. Yeah. And so for the robbery of £16, mm-hmm. both men were sentenced to be hung. And you can say what you want about William Brody. A wrong gun. Yes, but he never physically entitled. attacked anyone. No, but it was a, an entitled wrong Oh, he was a complete entitled wrong But considering the only crime that they were on trial for was the robbery of £16. And oh. the fact that during that robbery, no one had been injured. You, know. you don't know. I mean, No, no, no. No one had been injured. The fright that he gave that old woman, she could have died of shock. Yeah, but she didn't. What I'm saying is he never deliberately went out to hurt anyone. They did take guns to these robberies, but mm. they never used them. All right. Uh, but 
Sounds regardless. like you're on their side. Well, I'm just bit. saying that sometimes it seems that, you know, crimes that go against business interests seem to get punished a lot more harshly than yeah. crimes that are morally more mm. wrong. Um, I'll stop being political. Um, stories persist that the well-connected Brody had a plan to cheat death. People point to the sarcasm in his last will and testament where he bequeathed his personality traits to both friends and enemies and to the fact that he seemed to be very relaxed when led to the gallows on October the 1st. My birthday! Exactly 199 years before your birthday, but yes. Um, When the executioner found that the ropes had been set too short... Deacon Brody hopped down off the scaffold to converse with some friends in the crowd as if he didn't have a care in the world. They then said they'd sorted it. He hopped back up and found that because he was a tiny man, yep. like me, tiny mm. man, they'd still set it too short. So the you know, executioner had to untie it again. Mm-hmm. So he just hopped back down like, and sort of like, oh, sorry about that interruption. Anyway, where were we? And also he seemed to be rather interested in how the noose was being tied. And he had a good chat with the executioner just before he mm-hmm. slipped his head in. So they were like, come on, no one's that cool. Mm. I mean, it may be this is a rich guy who's never faced a consequence in his life and still no. feels like this is all play pretend and that someone's going to mm. rush up and say, no, 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 you're going to be pardoned. It's, I mean, narcissists are a very special breed of people, yeah. aren't they, really? They never believe they're going to get caught. They never believe they've done anything wrong. They never believe that anything bad is actually going to happen to them, do they? And it may have just been a defence mechanism. Well, it might have been. But it was rumoured that he may have either had a metal tube that he placed in his windpipe, Mm. although that doesn't seem particularly convincing if he was conversing with his friends just before he got up there. That seems like the kind of thing where you wouldn't be able to talk and no. have a metal tube in your windpipe. Or that he was wearing a metal collar mm. under his sort of clothes mm-hmm. and that the reason he was talking to the um, executioner was to kind of convince him to not notice it in exchange for coin. Mm. But again, the stories that are told from people contemporaneously about the execution, he took off his cravat before being hung. Mm-hmm. Um, so... That would kind of reveal the apparatus you'd put there, wouldn't it? Yeah, and I, I always, I always assumed that people were hung in kind of long robes. No, no, you were, you were hung in your best. It was oh, tradition. Right. If you were going to be executed, you wore your best duds to try and preserve some some form of dignity. So it didn't matter right. if you were, you know, a common sort of pig fit thief. You'd okay. wear your best tattered rags because it was, you know. You you want to at least put on a show, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, but it was also rumoured, once you discount those two theories, that he had hired a doctor to revive him as soon as the sentence had been carried out. Because unlike people who were sentenced for murder, mm. where the body was then dissected, mm. um, so you lost rights, this was um, a financial crime. So yeah. after the sentence had been carried out, his body was released to his friends and relatives. Mm. And it is true that as soon as his body was cut down, it was immediately taken by his mates who sped away with it in a cart at high speed. Wow. Some claim that the doctor was waiting at the other end Mm -hmm. and that he was then going to bleed him in sort of specific places which would induce the heart to start beating again. Right. 
Um, but others say that there'd been an instance a few years before where a woman had been hung and the um, movement of the cobbles had kick-started her heart and she'd actually continued to live for another mm. couple of years afterwards and that they were trying to recreate that by going, well, if a slow-moving cart had got her, we're going to go hell for leather down these cobbles and see if William just goes, Bleh! and sits <laughs> up. Although fanciful to think that Deacon Brody did eventually make it to America under an assumed name, mm. it is true that he has definitely survived in another way. Go on. A full 80 years after the execution, mm. or was it? It was. Did he live? He didn't. No. A young Robert Louis Stevenson was a child, as most young people are, mm. in Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. As a sickly youth, he spent long periods of time in his room. Yeah. Because he was sensitive. Or maybe he was just ill. I can yeah, sympathise. He was sensitive and he had an overactive imagination. It's just, the world was just too stimulating for such delicate beautiful flower well anyway for whatever reason he spent a lot of time Mm. in his room yeah and at the foot of his bed was a cabinet Mm. that had been made by one deacon brodie oh right the young man had been told the story of brodie's double life yeah and as he sat staring at the cabinet for long hours he pondered how a single body could seem to contain two vastly different personalities yeah because we've talked about the criminal personality but all that time, up until he did his moonlit flit, yeah, he put on this face. He was the life and soul of the party. He was. He was, he was respectable. A man. People loved him. Yeah, friends and family. I he was a businessman. I didn't even mention that. But obviously, when it came to the trial, well, yes, this is what I. I... One of the mistresses, yeah, agreed to um, basically alibi him and say that he'd spent the entire night at hers. Okay. Even after she found out about the other mistress because they found out about each other at the trial. Amazing. And that was it. And this is like bloody Maury shit. It really was. But one of them still agreed that they would claim that he'd been there all night and that there was no way he possibly could have been involved. But they basically said, yeah, we're going to believe Smith's testimony despite him being an avowed criminal Mm -hmm. who should have been transported to wherever we were going to transport him to. Mm-hmm. But we can't trust you because you're his second side piece and you're obviously <laughs> too emotionally involved in this. Yep. And you have material gain to be had, which she yeah. clearly did. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but imagine that. You find out that you're the second woman. <laughs> On the grassy knoll. <laughs> oh, God. As, as you know, your financial sort of stability is also being ripped away. Well, that also, yeah. But yes, he he sat there pondering how this one body could contain two people, essentially. Yeah. The idea would eventually grow into a novella called The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, oh, which was wow. first published in 1886, exactly 100 years after the beginning of Deacon Brodie's crime spree. <gasps> the book went on to become one of Robert Louis Stevenson's most popular works and has never been out of print to this day. No. It is still in print. I've never read it. No? No. Right, well, that's your homework. I don't get homework. Yeah, that's your homework. I run a home. You're gonna, <laughs> I'm not doing homework. You're going to post a book review and it's got to be 3,000 words and you've got to talk about overarching themes. God. Yeah, that's right. I and we're gonna get And we're going to get a high school English teacher to mark it and give you a grade. So, 
That is the story wow. of William Deacon Brodie, an entitled twit. Yes. Who had uh, illusions that he was a criminal mastermind, and it turned out he really, really wasn't. An because... inflated sense of self, I think. Because, mm. again, I mean... Even the crimes he got on easy mode, he didn't actually break in anywhere. No. He was gi- he was in a position where he was given the means of entry. Means. Yeah. So And he still messed it yeah, up. Yeah, he, he was doing crime on easy mode. Uh-huh. And he still messed it up. Yeah. But they, I mean, if he was a true criminal mastermind, and this is how I would have run it, I would never have set foot in anybody else's house. Oh, you'd have been a, a kingpin. Yeah. You'd have directed them and yeah. then had plausible deniability yeah mm. and you know this is why i mean he wanted the thrill of it he did he liked he the because you know he was the only bugger wearing a mask and oh, you know yeah. that by the last one it was a domino mask see i just imagine imagine a whift of chiffon <laughs> just it just kind of it's an illusion of a mask but you know who i am no it's full adamant it's just paint across the eyes <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So our source for this week's episode okay. was The Man Who Was Jekyll and Hyde, The Lives and Crimes of Deacon Brody by Rick Wilson. Very good. And I mean, aside from the crimes, which it's almost like incidental. It gives you so much of the social history of Edinburgh from the slums that were there yeah. to the gentrification and how that fed into um, William being able to do his crimes. Mm-hmm. But my favourite fact... When you were trying to walk down the the alleys of Edinburgh, the old city, mm-hmm. in the dark, mm. they would nail fish to the walls to sort of reflect the moonlight to act as a sort of system to help direct Cat's you through. Eyes. Yeah, but it was literally just fish. Just fish. So you go to the fishmongers at the end of the day and Jesus any fish Christ. that were about just... to spoil... Oh, my... You would rotting take... fish. Yeah. The watchmen, the good watchmen of Edinburgh, because there was a small force of about 120 watchmen, yeah. would go and they would buy, at cheap prices, the rotting fish and then would, as a public service, hammer them to the walls to provide a rudimentary emergency lighting system. You could also hire caddies who were Highlanders... And they would take you where you wanted to go. Right. It's the it's the um, origin of the idea of a caddy carrying your golf clubs. If mm. you were a rich person and you mm. had to walk home, you could hire a caddy and they would walk in front of you and would shout at people to not throw their night soil down while they were passing. So you your wouldn't poo. get covered in shit. And that evolved into they do other things and they soon became like a concierge, you know, like... If like you a needed, gentleman's gentleman. Yeah, if you needed, if you were in Edinburgh and you needed something, yeah. you could approach a caddy. Oh right, and okay. you could, you know, retain their services, and they'd yeah. get you where you wanted to go. And da 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 da. Oh wow! And once those sort of the need for that fell away mm-hmm. over the years, the one thing that was retained was the idea of a caddy carrying your golf clubs around the course, mm-hmm. so that you didn't mm-hmm. have to. And it became a sort of profession in that way. So those were two fun facts that were also in there, aside from the crime. But it was a good read. It was a bit more of a... I know you did enjoy reading it, because obviously, I mean, we've got now quite the collection of uh, historical books upstairs. And uh, Oh, and it it contains copies of the incriminating letters as well. Amazing. And he's such a whiny bitch. (laughs) I bet he is. Because a part of him is like, it's so unfair that I have to leave now. 
and even though I'm going to America, I'm I'm too old to go back into the cabinet making industry. And anyway, I'm gonna have to start the business on my own this time. I'm not gonna inherit Daddy's business. <sighs> and can you send me some clothes? Because these clothes don't fit. And I want to make sure I've got enough money to buy a suit when I get to New York. Hi there, it's Emma, Chief Organiser at Consistently Eccentric. Here to remind you all that if you like what you hear, you can catch up with all previous episodes and session series by searching for us on Acast, Spotify and iTunes. How fancy. You can also join us on Instagram at Consistently Eccentric Podcast, where we update on the weekly episode and post all of our bonus content for you lucky lot. See you next week.